mom told me this an autistic person bought himself some cologne for his present to his wife so that she could smell him wearing it <laughs> um, which made perfect sense to him and she was like yeah no that's the kind of thing you feel like sometimes your ideas make perfect sense to you but other people have a hard time like making the connection welcome to unsuitable advice podcast i'm your host gail Suter the CEO of unsuitableadvice.com. We are here to change the way the world thinks about neurodiverse students. here with Teresa and Eli today, and they're here to share their experience about raising a neurodiverse changemaker and being neurodiverse. I'm so honored because it's literally the first time I've been able to find a parent-child combination who are willing to come on together. I'm so grateful to you both. Teresa, do you want to start by introducing yourself, and then we can have Eli introduce himself after that. My name's Teresa and for 11 years I was a college professor of history and I've been transitioning. I left academia to move home to Colorado and part of it was my own career ambitions and a shift in focus of what I'm interested in and part of it was to be closer to family especially for Eli. I think um, that's been a really good change but also to get better access to resources and education and I think we found that what do you want to say about yourself, kiddo? I am Eli, and I do not know what to say. Can I share a couple of things? I'll just talk about what Eli loves. It's safe to say you love cats. You love chess. You love laser tag, Dungeons and Dragons, and math and chemistry. You're in eighth grade and you're already doing chemistry? Yes, not that impressive. I find that when we have a superpower, it seems easy to us, but it's amazing to others. Yeah, I would say so. So that's a little bit about us. Eli, how big was your public school and how many students were in your classroom? Uh, About 20 people. And your new school in Colorado is a public school. Is the program made for neurodiverse students? No. Will you describe the program where you're at now? I'm at the public school. It's just a school. I wouldn't say that. Yes, yes. I, I mean, it's a good school, but it's still just a school. And how many kids in this classroom? The same number? Yep, pretty much. A little bit more because there's more people in the school. How is it different from your last school? Better funded. And what do you notice since it's better funded? The teachers being able to afford all this science stuff. I think teachers understand more about neurodivergency. Can I share the story about at the beginning of the year? One of your teachers for the robotics, he noticed that you were getting a little overwhelmed. Do you want to share that story? You noticed I was being overwhelmed at a big assembly with the whole school in the gym. So he gave me some earplugs. Was that helpful? Yes. So he takes the time to see you in all aspects, even when you're not in his class. Well, I was in his robotics standard learning opportunity. And were you guys presenting as a robotics team? Nope. You were just sitting in assembly. Mm-hmm. Wasn't really our choice. Yeah, there are a lot of those times in school. And Teresa, what differences did you see when you were looking for schools? 
Well, I want to preface this to say that for a long time, we had a pretty good system going, but I think one of the key people, the special needs coordinator, the person who kind of helps facilitate and oversee the IEP, meet with the teachers, whatever that role is. I mean, they have different names in different schools. The woman we worked with was a key piece and Eli, she was really important, right? She really helped you. Her counterpart at the school here has been amazing. For example, there was a day that he got zoomed in on something on another student's desk and he was having trouble kind of sitting still. And so that day, immediately they had a rocking chair. Like they just went down, got the rocking chair and put it in the classroom. And now that chair is there. I mean, it wasn't, they didn't even call me to ask, you know, hey, this thing happened. They just knew how to handle it. This is the first year I've never had a call from the school. I think that they just have the knowledge and the support. They just handle it in the moment. And the IEP coordinator, she is a key part of that. She is fantastic. Eli, when you were in school, do you ever have times where you wish teachers knew why you were doing what you were doing? I had ASD students before, and sometimes they like to go be alone or go on recess and hang out on their own to not have so much going on. But then other teachers would assume they're being left out when they were choosing to be out. Do you have times like that? in tech class when there was a substitute teacher and all the machines in the wood shop are going whir, 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 whir. And so I'm sitting outside on the table reading, reading stuff out of my notebook and the teacher's like, is someone not letting you use the word? And I'm like, come on. The substitute didn't understand that that was really sensory for you. Do you usually wear earplugs when you go into wood shop? Uh, yeah, but that's not going to help a giant screaming pterodactyl from space. My husband has a wood shop. I know exactly the sound you're talking about. No noise canceling headphones would work. Would it be safe to say that that's probably one of the areas that's most misunderstood by your teachers is sensory? Because they don't have it themselves. So they don't know the extent of it and they don't know how to deal with it. So right. what are some of the things that you find the most challenging about sense going into sensory overwhelm? can't feel your arms and they feel like they're expanding and contracting like a breadstick. Wow, that's a great description. And is it just your arms? Well, I get, it hits my arms first. But if it continues, it'll go to my legs and then torso. And then I can't feel my body and I feel like I'm expanding and I need to get out. And when you get that feeling in your arms, you know it's time to get out of that space. But once you're in that overload and it's all over your body, are you able to get out? Or at that time, are you totally shut down? It's hard to, but yes, I still have mobility because I have vision. I can see where my legs are going. And do they feel like jellyfish almost? No. Or is it tension? A balloon. Like a balloon. Or like those tube guys that are outside of the car dealerships. When it hits your arms, are you able to say to your teacher, I need to take a break? I usually just do. You just walk out? That gets me in trouble sometimes. But I guess if that's how it hits your body, it's hard to verbalize it at the same time you're trying to get out before it overtakes you. Correct. And so do your teachers know that about you? So when you're walking out, they know you're just taking a break? I don't know if they know that about me or not. So you don't tell them in advance? I thought that that was what the IEP was for, but I mean... I guess that's not correct. Well, it could be correct, but they might not relate that information in the moment. 
Well, Eli, this is really helpful. Maybe um, for next year, well, for the rest of this year and next year, we need to make sure that they understand. It would be really cool if that was something you could tell people, because there's a lot of companies that are recruiting people like you because they want all of the superpowers that come with ASD. Most of those companies completely overlook the challenges with them, though, and then don't give them support. That's one thing I'm trying to change with my company, Unsuitable Advice. I don't know how well one one podcast alone is going to do. Big changes happen with one person just starting to make the change. Change making is tough. ASD people that I've come across are very successful entrepreneurs because they don't necessarily want to deal with somebody else's system when they're following their personal passions. I would agree with that. Eli, is it all right if I ask your mom about when you were a baby and how your life together unfolded, or is that too uncomfortable? I would not appreciate that. You don't want to hear it. You can tell her what the diagnosis process was like but don't tell her what it was like having a baby that's just kind of weird oh Eli actually it wasn't weird at all okay Eli every baby is a little bit weird (laughs) okay that's fair Eli was a really fun baby a really giggly kiddo, very curious. I think looking back on it, you probably had some sensory issues, even as an infant that I wasn't aware of that might've made life a little easier for you. Like you really did not like to have your diaper changed. When I put Eli on his back, it wasn't that he would cry like in a distress, but looking back, I think it was really uncomfortable. But otherwise, you were a giggly, delightful, happy baby. And the main things that I noticed was Eli could spot a fan literally from across a football field. So a super intense interest in anything that spun. So as a treat, we would drive Eli over to see the wind turbines uh, because he loved that. But I remember wondering, is this a sign of autism? But Eli didn't have any of the other signs, like he'd made eye contact. We had a friend who lived in a neighboring city who had had a five-year-old who was diagnosed with autism, and Eli was very different from that child. So I didn't know. And the pediatrician at the time, when Eli was uh, one and two, didn't pick up on it. I think there was a little bit of speech delay, but nothing that really stood out. So we just continued with life as it was, and then we moved right when Eli turned two, and it was right after Eli's second birthday that they did a screening the university do these screenings of all the preschools for vision, hearing, and autism. And it was in the screening that they said, we think Eli might have autism. They did a thing where they would have them describe emotions on these kind of cartoon faces and Eli could not read the emotions. You also did this amazing thing that one of your teachers showed me. Eli would make these kind of little paper pinwheels and go over to the vents that were on the bottom of the floor where the air was blowing up and he would put his finger on them. And so he would hold them and they would spin. And I remember asking Eli at the time, what do you like about the fans? And he said, oh, mom, they look like beautiful flowers. I just love looking at them. That was the only thing with what I knew about autism. That was something that I saw. 
So he got flagged in that study. The university has an autism spectrum disorders clinic, and we were able to get a diagnosis within six weeks, which is pretty fast because where we had been before, it was like a year and a half late to get a screening. They gave the diagnosis. And at the time, this was 2011, 2012. The information they gave me at the time was really scary. The informational material was your kid's going to get bullied. You have to do this. You have to do that you're going to need to quit your job and put all your resources in getting all these therapies. Yeah, no, no. But you know what I did? I was like, I'm not reading this. This isn't helpful. It's not helping me understand what I need to do because there is a lot of fear. And at the time, I didn't know much about autism. I actually had known about Temple Grandin for a long time because my aunt worked with autistic kids and she would tell me about Temple Grandin's various books. So I went to her books and her book, as I see it, was the most helpful. It was just no nonsense. This is what this is. This is what you do. These are, this is what this means. And then I started reading memoirs of autistic people, mostly autistic people who had been diagnosed as adults, like the look me in the eye, a journal of best practices, which is the story Eli shared with you is from that book. Those were way more helpful than the other material. And what's amazing now, um, I have one, there's Jennifer Coco tool, She's autistic, her husband's autistic, and her three children are. This book, The Asper Kids Launchpad, was really helpful. I don't know if you know it. It just talks about how being a neurodivergent person yourself, like autistic people don't necessarily have that inner structure. So the details can be overwhelming. So breaking down things into visual schemes, like we did a lot of that when Eli was younger. And what does that look like? So for example, for a long time, we had a visual scheme of what the steps to get ready for school. You get your shirt and your pants and your sock, and then we eat breakfast. And then we do this just so that there's like some kind of visual reference you can do it for anything. This is how you wash the dishes, the steps. I would pull stuff off the internet. So to do laundry, you gather your clothes like clothes alike. You'd have like a little box with each step so that the steps don't get overwhelming. It's time to clean your room. Like, what does that mean? But if we do stuff like, here's three things for you to do in your room, then Eli has independence and it's not like mom telling me what to do. So this book has a lot of examples of what that looks like, but trying to do have your space organized, visually organized in a way that makes sense to autistic people is really helpful. Did you have something to say, kiddo? So you've never told me about the really scary screenings. Why was it like that? Why, why did it, why was it trying to fear monger autism? Well, I think that that's kind of the level of understanding in society, but I think things, and I think people were genuinely wanting to be helpful, but I think the last 10 years, there's been an explosion of understanding like TikTok and Instagram and social media has helped autistic people find their voices. So I think it was just where we were as a society. One of the memoirs I read by the guy who wrote look me in the eye. He talked about in the seventies, like nobody had a clue. Actually, most people didn't. I've actually met an autistic person who was diagnosed like in 1974, but he was very lucky because he had parents who knew about this, but he just said our society didn't have the awareness about, but that has really shifted. And I feel really good about the resources. You have taught me a lot about autism. Can I talk a little bit about autistic joy? Do you mind? You if, would you like to describe that? Because I don't want to 
speak for you. I think it, it was one of the biggest insights I ever got from you. Nope. Okay. He's playing chess right now. Playing it against myself. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, but I am thinking about what you're saying and I am listening because I can do that. That's a great superpower. I'd like to circle back and ask Eli a question about the fear mongering, because I know that oftentimes it's not just autism. It can be almost any neurodiversity, whether it's ADHD or dyslexia. One thing I would love to change about the whole screening process processes where there is a neurodiversity identified instead of saying oh I'm so sorry your child has dyslexia or ADHD or ASD I would love for it to be switched to saying oh my gosh you're so lucky you get to raise a neurodiverse child they are born change makers and they have a -a one-of-a-kind brain that will only be here once in the history of Earth. And there's a one in a million chance that you get to raise that type of brain and learn from different perspectives. So that's also a part of my mission. I know, Eli, that one podcast may not make a difference, but if we get 50 listeners and each of those 50 people talk to 50 people... Then you're going to have an exponential growth that is unsustainable after only six repetitions. Yes, but think about how many people we reach in those six repetitions. It's more than we had before. Hold on. Are you going to figure that out? Tell me if we have 50 people listen and we have exponential growth after six repetitions, how many people would have heard about changing that perspective? Twice as many people as there are on earth. That's all we need. I'll take it. I have a feeling that's not very probable, though. You never know. There is a tipping point at some point, Eli. We are just trying to create that. And you don't have to have a majority to get a tipping point. It it happens at much lower levels than that. Well, I have to say I am on board with that vision because it was a scary process and I didn't get those messages. So all of the appreciation really has come from what my kiddo has taught me. And one of the most beautiful things is autistic joy. And Eli has described it as just this intense feeling of joy, especially when you're talking about something you love with somebody is your way of connecting to them and showing your joy. And the the feeling, I'm not even sure I know how to describe the power of joy. So it's not all like sensory issues and being misunderstood. It's also just this way of looking out on the world that somebody could find joy in the periodic table of the elements, right? And the poetry and the harmony of that and and thinking like through all the combinations, there's such creativity there. So that's something I did not get in that original diagnosis that I've discovered along the way. And without saying too, too much, I probably have a pretty neurodiverse family. Now that Eli has helped shed a light on, there's a lot of people in the family who probably are neurodivergent. Yes, as is mine. many generations of change makers and amazing people. They've identified the genes that cause dyslexia in the human genome DNA tracking. And it's so interesting to look back at our ancestry and see those change makers and how that benefited Earth and our family. What if you had a neurotypical child? Do you think you'd learn as much? I've learned so much from my kiddo and we've gone on so many adventures, paper, airplane mechanics, laser tag, cats, periodic table of the elements. What other, you've got a black belt in Taekwondo, like Eli, if Eli's going to do something, it gets 
done. Who knew I would learn so much from all of this? And can we, since we're talking about change makers, um, your book that I got you that highlights like all these famous autistic people, and it ranges from obviously Temple Grandin to probably Mozart and Beethoven. Mozart. And what's his name? Mozart, sorry. What's his name? The Wassily Kandinsky, the artist who was also a synesthete. He didn't just paint paintings. They had sound. He had a color sound synesthesia. So remember what you said when we were talking about all these like autistic people? I loved it. How neurotypicals need to be represented better. I do remember. (laughs) He's like, wow, neurotypicals need some representation. Like like, all of these neurodivergents are driving these big innovations in the world. It's so true. And I think the most important message to get out there is If you operate outside the box, it allows you the freedom to innovate from the problems you observe that are going on inside there. But if you're comfortable in the box, those innovations don't come to you because you don't understand the need for innovation. Plus, the changes that the neurodivergent people create make the box so much better. Absolutely. Eli, I'm also a classroom teacher, and I'm always trying to think of how to make classrooms more comfortable for different types of people. Can you think of any suggestions to give me, like your mom was saying, the rocking chair was helpful. Well, as long as you don't let middle schoolers intentionally get on your nerves all the time, you should be fine. (laughs) Oh, come on, Eli. They're middle schoolers. They like to get on everyone's nerves, even neurotypical people's. I think that is the definition of middle schoolers. However, In middle school, your brain is really expanding. You've always had the ability to understand very complex things, but most neurotypical kids don't develop that until later. That's the reason why they don't teach chemistry until high school. Oh, that's why everyone is struggling to have carbon. Yes, there's a certain time where their brain develops the ability to deal with more complex concepts. It just happened that your brain was able to deal with them right from the get-go. Now, let's get back to classroom furniture. What do you think would be helpful to make a classroom more comfortable for people with sensory issues? Furniture that's better than what you have, probably. Would you like a hammock chair? Rocking chair is fun. The hammock chair, you can swing in. Um, yeah, swinging it is fun. What about sitting on a bounce, like a yoga ball? Have you, did that help? Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. you like that. What about beanbag chairs? Do you like those? Beanbag chairs are kind of silly. They don't help? No, I just think they're silly. So the concept of a beanbag chair is silly. Are they comfortable? Yes. You're Zoom lensing on chess right now, and you can still carry on a conversation? Yes. So if there's an autistic student who's Zoom lensing, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not hearing what's going on in class. That's really helpful to know. Yes. Do you have any other parting words or anything else you would want to share, Teresa? I want to ask a question about the stimming. Are you, do visual stimmings help you more than physical stimming? Because like a lava lamp is a visual stim. Is there one that helps you more than the other? There very much is. I enjoy physical stims better because I can move, but that's going to vary between autistic person. That was what I was thinking, that some autistic people are going to need the movement more. But I get the visual stim. It feels really good to have something visual. Yeah. And I think that's an important thing to remember. Don't generalize from the specific. 
Yeah, I didn't really understand the sensory input that Eli experienced until COVID when we were around each other all the time. I felt like we got to know each other again really well. Eli was older and was able to explain to me that the grocery store is an overwhelming place. Classrooms that have fluorescent lighting, he would love to get rid of fluorescent lights. Is it the sound or the flickering? The sound for sure. This is the thing about the school we found. It's an eco school, so it's an energy efficient school. And Eli said, even though there's more kids in the school, it's a quieter school. The building itself is not overstimulating. When I talk to schools about increasing neurodiversity, it's not about how neurodiverse people need to change to fit into those systems. It's about what we put in the system that makes it easier for them to access it. And what I've found is that every change that makes environments more accessible for one type of brain or person, it makes the environment better for all of the people who are using that. Other students may not be able to understand why they feel stressed in a building or classroom, but somebody with a more highly tuned nervous system can identify what's bothersome. It's true for curriculum also. Making it more accessible through multi-sensory teaching strategies helps every child retain and recall the concepts more effectively. Making environments and classrooms accessible for the most unique learners and people makes school a better place for all people. I think building design. It probably helps all the kids, frankly. Crescent lighting is just not pleasant in my view. The quieter building, more energy efficient building has made a big difference. And that was a big part in deciding which high school Eli's going to go to. There was one high school that has a really good education program, but he's like, I cannot be in this building. It's too, too much. These lights are horrible. I will not do well here. That works for Eli. Other autistic people, that might not be an issue. It might be something else. I love your paradigm shift in, hey, you're one of the lucky ones. You're going to have an amazing ride. There are some things to think about because so much of the emphasis was on preparing Eli to fit in. And yeah. I none of this is a knock on anybody or any of the professionals. Like we're all trying to do the best with what we know. But I wish I had understood about the sensory issues. Like Eli was 11 before he could fully explain to me, this is why I can't sit still when we go in the store. It's overwhelming to me. I wish I had had more preparation on that because if the sensory overwhelm is there, the communication, the social skills, none of that. I've been teaching Eli more house skills. There really are a lot of steps and it, it really is. These are real skills. Probably everybody just really breaking down the steps or even having some kind of visual schedule so you can remember. There's a lot that goes into it. It's like people who can do algebra, they get so good at the algebra that they forget how to explain patient. Eli, I have a question for you. Once you learn something like laundry, do you always have to have the steps visually or can you go without them? I will almost always want the steps. That's helpful. Especially when it comes to laundry. My husband struggles with those steps. Oftentimes, he'll forget to start either the washer or the dryer. Maybe if he had visual cues, it would help. I remember the University of Alabama has a great autism conference every year, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's now available. You can attend it virtually, which is great. They bring in wonderful speakers. One year, they focused on ADHD, and they brought in an ADHD specialist. She demonstrated this really interesting diagram that had triangles and lines, like 
it was complicated. It wasn't uniform or balanced or anything. So the instruction is draw this diagram. Then they would give this test. Neurotypicals could replicate it, but ADHD people could not. And it was because there was too much information with, and they don't know where to start. And I think that that's the thing with autistic people too, is like the, it is a loud world full of details. So finding a pathway to navigate through that, that's what the visual schedules or visual instructions can do to kind of calm down all the information you need to focus on. That's been so helpful. Is there any other things you would like to mention before we wrap up? No, I have a couple of closing things. Um, again, I don't want to diminish the challenges uh, more high support autistic people have. I do want to say looking for the opportunities and and the and the superpowers and the gifts that Austin so But Oops. don't only oh, look for the gifts like those stupid companies that exploit us. Well, to balance. Yeah. I mean, there were a couple of, there's a really good book. Have you heard of it? It's called um, We're Not Broken. It's Eric Garcia. I have. He's an autistic person. So again, there's kind of a matter of factness, the way autistic people explain things that I really appreciate. I guess a few things I would want to say, and these are things I've learned from other autistic people. I have a friend who is diagnosed with autism at the age of 50, her daughter, and she got the diagnosis when her 12-year-old got the diagnosis. But she said people think that um, autistic people don't have empathy. She said, I actually have a lot of empathy, but when I look at somebody's face, the reason I can't tell what their emotion is is I see so many things on their face. Could it be this or could it be that? So even non-speaking autistic people, there's a lot going on there. And they found out that she had taught herself to read and they didn't know. They thought she was just looking at books, but she was actually reading them by the equivalent of third grade. What age? She was third grade, so eight, nine. She was reading books and nobody taught her. She just figured it out on her own. Eric Garcia talks about the first non-speaking autistic person who is now at Berkeley. So universities shouldn't rule out non-speaking people either or schools. It's just helping access. I really appreciate your perspective. It's been great talking Mama. to you today. Thank you. I'm so honored that you chose to talk together. It's a real gift. So I really appreciate it. That's all for today. Head over to our website, unsuitableadvice.com and sign up for our newsletter. And don't forget, it's better to be outside of the box.